2007, November 27th. Today is Lecture 43, Icy Worlds of the Outer Solar System, the Trans-Neptunian Objects and the Kuiper Belt. It's an important part of our process here. All right, let's get going. We've, uh, we've talked a bit about asteroids yesterday, sort of leftover materials from the formation of the solar system, and that corresponded to the leftover materials from the formation of the inner parts of the solar system. What we're going to concern ourselves with today is the leftover materials from the outer portion, or icy portion, of the solar system. And we'll answer the question, at least get at a part of the answer of, is Pluto a planet or not, yes or no, in today's lecture. So we call it in the icy, we're going to look at the icy worlds of the outer solar system. So the key ideas today is, first I want to introduce the three largest of these icy worlds of the outer solar system. Triton, which is the large giant moon of, of Neptune, which has got a very, very cold surface and has nitrogen geysers. It's another of the geologically active worlds of the outer solar system. We're then going to meet the two other objects as free floaters rather than being moons are Pluto and Eris. These are dwarf planets. They're no longer considered full-fledged planets. And they're very similar to Triton in their properties. We have never gotten a close look at either of these worlds, at least not yet, but Triton we have seen close up from Voyager 2. So we'll use what we've learned at Triton to give us some idea of what's going on on Pluto and Eris. This then leads naturally into a discussion of this entire class of objects called trans-Neptunian objects, or TNOs for short. We kind of ran out of fancy names for objects. We don't have like asteroids in the uh, inner solar system outside. They're called trans-Neptunian objects, which as their name suggests, orbits beyond the orbit beyond the orbit of Neptune. These are family of icy bodies. They'll include groups called the Kuiper Belt objects, which is a particular grouping of these objects. We'll see the Plutinos, which are three to two resonance objects with Neptune, and the so-called scattered disk objects. Sort of distinctions among these various objects will turn out to be determined by their dynamics. Once again, we'll see the role of gravity and orbits in determining what the nature of objects is. <clears throat> so let's start here with Triton. We've already met Triton very briefly when we talked about Uranus and Neptune, but it's now time to pay attention to it closely. It's really different. It's a very different place than any place we had seen before, and it became very clear when Voyager 2 passed by this world in 1989 that this was something different. So it's the giant moon of Neptune. It's 2,700 kilometers in diameter, which is about 21% the radius of the Earth. So this is a big object. This thing is actually bigger than our moon. Its mean density is about 2 grams per cc. So immediately you know you're dealing with an intermediate type object. It's about halfway between rock and ice, and so the very likely what we're seeing here is a very, very deep icy mantle sitting on top of a dense rock core. So we're once again seeing a differentiated object, except now instead of metal sinking to the bottom and silicate sinking to the top, rock has sunk to the bottom and the ices have floated to the top and then begun to accumulate to build up the mantle as these objects were built. <coughs> its surface is in fact one of the coldest surfaces in the entire solar system, in part because portions of it are very shiny and relatively new. Its surface temperature has been measured at 34 degrees Kelvin. That's 398 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. That's about as cold as any surface we've seen so far. The surface that we're seeing here in this beautiful Voyager picture over here onto the right of the screen is covered primarily in ices, but ice is now made of nitrogen, which is a gas in this room, methane, carbon dioxide, water, and, and carbon monoxide. In fact, the ordering here is, is a little bit backwards. It turns out that the three most important volatile ices from Neptune on out in the solar system are nitrogen, methane, and carbon monoxide. 
Carbon dioxide and water are much more common to the inner portions of the solar system, although water is certainly going to be present in abundance. At these temperatures, water is basically a solid. In fact, water ice, you could think of water ice as playing the same role that silicate rocks play in the inner solar system. Water is literally as hard or even harder than rock at this point. So it's not, it's not the kind of ice you and I are acquainted with here on Earth. This is a much harder, almost geological material. Whereas then the, the light frosting ices, the things you get volatile on the top that can switch between being ice and being gas, are nitrogen, methane, and carbon monoxide. And in fact, it's the fact that these things are volatile is important to us because these are going to be the building blocks of the very thin atmospheres we find on the largest of these. And in fact, Triton has a very, very thin atmosphere. It's primarily a nitrogen atmosphere with very small amounts of methane and carbon monoxide in it. Otherwise, it's too cold for CO2 and water vapor, and they're completely frozen out. The other thing that's immediately obvious when you look at this picture of Triton over here on the right is that this is an extremely young geologic surface. It is not coated in craters. In fact, portions of it are very bright and shiny. We're seeing a geologically active object. And that, again, was something of a big surprise. It was expected that Triton was going to be old and ancient, although there were some mysteries about it. One of the most interesting things that was seen during the Voyager encounter when the spacecraft came by <coughs> were these black streaks. Now, what's noticeable about the black streaks is one or two might catch your eye and say, oh, that's kind of weird. But then you can see there's a whole bunch of them, and they all move and seem to point in the same general direction. And that tells you that you're seeing wind flows in the nitrogen atmosphere, and what you're seeing is geysering. This is a phenomenon known as cryovolcanism. Now, we've seen cryovolcanism already. We saw it on the moon Enceladus, where we saw cryovolcanism in the form of liquid water and water vapor spraying out of the tiger stripe cracks in the surface of the moon and recoating it with ice, as well as spraying out to form the E-ring of Saturn. Here, we're dealing with a much, much colder place than Enceladus. So what we're dealing with is probably some liquid ices moving out, but not in gas form. And we're seeing the geysering is actually liquid nitrogen which is, you know, we can get liquid nitrogen in big tanks across campus, but it's extremely cold. We're dealing with liquid air. Now, what's going on here is where the heat is coming from. When we see a young surface, we see geologic activity, we immediately have to ask the question, well, that means the interior's hot. Why is the interior hot? And the answer is basically in its orbit. Triton is sufficiently close to Neptune that there are strong tides raised in Triton, and Triton is being tidally heated. So just like we saw on Io, around Jupiter, and on Enceladus around Saturn, it's the role of tides, and in the case of Saturn, of course, it's the role of resonances in keeping these moons hot. And the interior being hot makes it geologically active. As soon as it freezes out, basically time stops as far as geology is concerned, and the thing will just simply get cratered and cratered over time. These geysering that we see here forming these black plumes are geysers of liquid and gaseous nitrogen. They're basically blasting up out of the icy, coming out of the cracks. It's under high pressure in the heat. It geysers up out of the cracks, and as it geysers up, it hits this sort of slow flow of wind in this very thin nitrogen atmosphere. As it geysers out, it also carries up black carbonaceous gunk and organic material. That stuff gets carried up, and then it gets carried downstream. So the head and the crack here, where it's geysering out of, is about right there where my laser pointer is. And then the general wind flow is running roughly from left to right across the screen, and it produces these black plumes. There are a handful of pictures at very low resolution where we caught a couple of these on the limb. And you can see the nitrogen coming up and then this plume just flowing out downstream 
depositing itself across the planet and making these dark systematic streaks across the planet. So once again, we see warm interior heated by tides and volcanism, but now, because we're in the icy outer reaches of the solar system, that volcanism is now not in liquid rock or even liquid water. It's actually volcanism and liquid nitrogen. So this is a very, this is a very weird place. The origin of Triton is a little odd because there's one other detail about Triton I've neglected to mention. It's in a circular orbit around Neptune, but it's retrograde. It's actually orbiting backwards. Now, this is a big difference from what we've seen so far. All the giant moons we've seen thus far in the solar system around Jupiter and Saturn all orbit in the, in the equatorial plane of their planets, moving in the same central general sense of rotation. And the idea is that they formed with the planet. Triton is moving backwards. It's moving retrograde. And the reason for that is, un, is unclear, but the best model that's been come up with is, in fact, a giant collision model. The idea is that Triton originally orbited the sun. It's what we would now call a dwarf planet. But it came within the gravity of a very close encounter with the gravity of Neptune. Now, normally, it would simply scatter off Neptune and probably get tossed into the outer solar system. That's the normal fate of something having a close gravitational encounter that's a free floater with Neptune. But in this case, the idea of what happened is that a moon happened to get a normal moon of, of Neptune got in its way, and they had a ram head-on collision. That head-on collision basically destroyed both objects, and what reformed was Triton. But because Triton was the bigger one, it was carried into a retrograde sense. So you had a collision that basically reversed that double moon collision system. The material reformed back onto Triton, reformed into a giant circular object, but because it was so close here to, the, to, the, to Neptune and was in an eccentric orbit, it was going to be continually squeezed and stretched by tides on its original elliptical orbit that was going to rob energy from the orbit and eventually circularize the orbit. Tidal circularization is a very well-known effect. It occurs on the moon, for example. That continual squeezing and stretching over Triton's history is what basically kept its interior melted and molten and hot. And that's why it's still geologically active to this day, and the tidal heating also explains how you get into a circular orbit when you're retrograde. Everywhere else you look in the solar system where you have a retrograde moon, they're usually tiny and irregular, and they're all in very, very elliptical orbits. So having a very large object in a circular orbit, the only way you can get that retrograde is to have basically an energy relaxation going on. And the best process and the most efficient way to do that is tidal relaxation. And so that's very likely what we're seeing here in the case of Triton. So here's a case where it sounds like I'm kind of invoking the tooth fairy. Oh, it's a collision. And we've, we've invoked it a number of times. But even though it sounds like an exotic explanation, it actually does work. It works out energetically in terms of the energy needed to do this. And it works out in terms of the fact that when we look all over the solar system, we see the marks on objects of massive collisions. And so it's not too surprising that we should see one or two, but just one or two very extreme events out of the many millions of objects in the solar system, like, for example, the backwards moon Triton. Well, Triton is a big object. If it was out in the solar system all by itself, it probably would have been called a planet in an earlier age. But it's still somewhat smaller than most of the other, ob other objects we now call planets. Turns out that Triton is probably the largest example we know of of a, a brand new class of objects. Now, before we've we've defined the terrestrial planets, which are kind of rocky, um, iron-rich objects: Earth, Venus, Mercury, and Mars. 
the gas giants, Jupiter and Saturn, and then the ice giants, which are basically very large ice balls with very deep hydrogen helium envelopes form this. Or generically, they're gas giants or gas planets. Pluto, when it was discovered in 1930, really didn't fit. It was kind of way out there. Maybe it was as big as the Earth, but it was really hard to tell how big it was because it was so far away. No one was sure how to classify it. But now we actually understand that Pluto and other objects like it are very, very small, and they form an, an entirely new class of object, if you will, a kind of a fourth kind of planetary object. And these are these icy, icy worlds of the outer solar system. To put their size in perspective, here's a picture of the Earth and the Moon shown in their, in their proper sizes relative to the two largest of the free-floating icy objects of the outer solar system, Pluto, its giant moon Charon, and its two tinier moons, Nix and Hydra, and then Eris, the largest known of these free-floating icy worlds, and its tiny moon, Dysnomia. Pluto was discovered in 1930 and for a long time was the ninth planet in the solar system until 2006, and Eris was discovered in 2005. What are these places? These are very big. They're sort of halfway between a planet and debris, and they turn out to be these objects we'll call dwarf planets. Let's start with Pluto here. Pluto was discovered in 1930 by this guy, gentleman over here in this picture, Clyde Tombaugh. He was a, f a Missouri farm boy. He was hired by the Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona, the same Lowell of uh, Canals on Mars fame. Because what they saw was that, remember, Neptune was discovered because Uranus had a little bit of a wobble in its orbit. And that wobble in its orbit was due to the gravitational perturbations of an unseen eighth planet, which turned out to be the planet Neptune. The planet Neptune was exactly where the mathematicians predicted it was going to be using Newtonian physics. That was a real triumph for Newtonian physics. As people began to watch the orbit of Neptune, there were claims going into the early part of the 20th century that Neptune also had a wobble in its orbit that was too big if you took into account the gravitational interactions with all the other seven planets, all the way up to Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Jupiter, Saturn, and Uranus being the biggest. And so people began to think, hey, maybe there's a ninth planet even further out than Neptune. Hey, you know, it worked once, maybe it'll work again. <clears throat> so people began to look at the motions of Neptune, which is further away and slower, look for these perturbations in its motion and try to use those to predict the presence of a, of a ninth planet beyond, a tra ninth trans-Neptunian planet. Well, it turns out, to make a long story short, Percival Lowell and others who did this were using bad data. And the data, in fact, when you reanalyze modern data for Neptune, you can set very strict limits on the absence of any large Uranus or Neptune or even Earth-sized planets to very, very large distances. The current limits are that there are no Earth-mass objects out to about 80 or 90 astronomical units from the Sun. But they didn't know that at the time. And so Percival Lowell set about patrolling the sky looking for this mystery trans-Neptunian planet. It got called colloquially Planet X. And Clyde Tombaugh was the astronomer that they hired to do the search. Well, by 1930, using photographic plate searches, using the machine that's shown Clyde's using here, an object was in fact found near the equatorial, near the ecliptic plane. It was found in a trans-Neptunian object, and they thought by its brightness and other orbital characteristics that it had to be at least as massive as the Earth. That may not have been enough to explain all the, the twitches they thought they saw in Neptune's orbit, but it was enough that it was immediately declared the ninth planet in 1930. But it's immediately, its properties began to make it look like it was a little bit odd. Okay? It was about 40 astronomical units out, 39.48 in round numbers. Very slow moving. It takes about 367 years to circle the sun. 
But what really stood out was that its orbit was hugely tilted with respect to the ecliptic plane. It was inclined by 17 degrees with respect to the ecliptic plane. Mercury has the largest tilt of all, and it's only 7 degrees. So this is way, way out of norm. Furthermore, the orbit is extremely elliptical, 0.249. That's a huge eccentricity. It's bigger even than some of the biggest eccentricities found among asteroids. And that immediately marked Pluto as kind of an odd bird. Here's a picture of its orbit up here. This is the regular solar system. You can see the very strongly tilted elliptical orbit of Pluto. So immediately, Pluto didn't really fit, but there was nothing else in the trans-Neptunian space, and so it got dubbed the ninth planet. Over time, people, however, began to redo the observations and realize that Pluto wasn't quite as big as they thought. In fact, that's, that's interesting. Pluto, in fact, is fairly small. It's only about 2,300 kilometers across. It's about 19% the size of the Earth. It's actually smaller than Triton. That really surprised people when its size was actually figured out. Its mass is only 0.2% the mass of the Earth. <coughs> its density, once again, 2 grams per cc. We're seeing a rocky core covered by a very, very deep icy mantle. Here's a computer rendering of what that probably looks like, a really tiny icy core and a gigantic icy mantle. It's a really different structure than what we see for a normal planet. Subsequent studies, most in the late 20th century and early 21st centuries, have shown that it, too, has a very cold, very icy surface. The surface temperature varies between 35 and 45 degrees Kelvin, whether it's closer or further from the sun on its long elliptical orbit. Um, the surface appears to be, from the reflectance spectroscopy, are ices of nitrogen. So now nitrogen is an ice, along with methane and traces of carbon monoxide and, and, and water ice. And it has been detected to have a very, very thin nitrogen atmosphere. So once again, we see nitrogen in a gas form, but a very, very thin atmosphere on these cold, small worlds. Pluto also has been discovered to have three moons. The moons weren't discovered. first moon was discovered in the 1970s. The other two, the smaller moons, Nix and Hydra, were discovered actually only two years ago by the Hubble Space Telescope. Charon is a very big moon. It's about 1,200 kilometers in diameter, and orbits pretty close, about 19,600 kilometers out. It turns out that Pluto and Charon are locked one-to-one -one with each other tidally. Now, the moon is locked to the Earth, so the moon always keeps one face towards the Earth. But the Earth spins around in 24 hours, so we see the moon at various times. Pluto and Charon are so close and so big, they're almost a double planet in some sense. Their tides lock each other. So it's like each, both Pluto and Charon have grabbed each other by the ears, and as they move around, not only does Charon always keep the same face towards Pluto, Pluto also always keeps the same face towards Charon, and they move around in a perfect lockstep. So it's, it's the only example we know of in the, in the solar system of a perfect one-to-one -one tidal resonance. They're really, really locked. The other two moons are tiny by comparison. You know, Charon is about 1,200 kilometers at approximately 40 to 160 kilometers apiece are these two tiny outer moons, Nix and Hydra, which are so faint, they were, basically, they were basically unobserved until the recent observations with the Hubble Space Telescope. It's very, very difficult observations to make. To give you a sense of scale, you can see here's Pluto and Charon sort of as these mottled dark balls. We have no idea what the surfaces of these things look like. We've never gotten a clear picture. They're still so far away. Here they are shown in contrast against the continental United States. This, this kind of picture right here is what shows you why people started questioning, certainly in the 1970s and onward, is Pluto really a planet? When they finally found the moon Charon in 19, it was 1974, I think, is when it was discovered. 
Once you have a moon or something orbiting, you can actually now use Kepler's, Newton's version of Kepler's third law to estimate the mass of Pluto. And when people estimated the mass of Pluto, it was tiny. For a long time, people thought it was a fraction of, you know, almost the mass of the Earth. It's barely 0.2, two thousandths of the mass of the Earth. And it's really small. I mean, it would barely, barely, it doesn't even cover the continental United States. And so people began to really question, should an object that small be called a planet? It really is completely of a different scale than the other worlds. Well, but, but again, it was the biggest thing out there. And lots of smaller objects in the 1990s, some smaller ice balls began to be discovered. An interesting bit of, bit of fact, the first trans-Neptunian object was discovered in 1930. The second trans-Neptunian object was not discovered until 1992. And the reason is because it's so far out in the solar system and it's so cold out there, <clears throat> these objects are really, really faint. And as a consequence, it wasn't until the development of super-sensitive electronic camera technology and big format detectors so we could survey large portions of the sky that we actually began to figure out how to find these silly things. They're so faint. So even with the discovery of multiple trans-Neptunian objects in the 90s, this debate about the status of Pluto sort of wound up, but it was still the biggest thing out there. So people said, eh, oh, let's just make it a planet. And I don't want to talk about it. People sort of just pushed the question aside. Well, in the year 2005, that question could no longer be ignored because Mike Brown and his colleagues at, at Caltech doing a search for large trans-Neptunian objects using a really cool, slow-moving object search technique found this object. It was originally called 2003 UB313. I may have just blown that name. But later it became known as Eris. In 2005, they had enough observations to plot its orbit and to estimate its size, and they realized it was bigger than Pluto. It's 2,400 kilometers in diameter, but it's way the heck out there. It's on a 68 astronomical unit uh, semi-major axis orbit with a period of 560 years. The eccentricity is 0.44. It's a hugely elliptical orbit, and it's tilted by 45 degrees out of the plane of the ecliptic. Spectroscopy shows that its composition is essentially identical to that of Pluto. Nitrogen, methane, carbon monoxide, and water ice is on the surface. And it even has one small moon. The orbit of that moon has been measured in the last year, and the mass of, of, of Eris is in fact consistent with an object with a mean density of around 2 grams per cc. So once again, we're seeing the same sort of thing. A rock ball covered by a very, very deep ice mat. So this is virtually identical to Pluto. Here's our best picture. It's so far away, it's just a little tiny blob. Here's Eris and its moon, Dysnomia. Here's an artist's artist conception of what it probably looks like, although the size of the sun there is very exaggerated in, in uh, Thierry Lombri's beautiful little painting here. Here's the orbits of Pluto and Eris. Again, they're very, very elliptical, and they're tilted tremendously with respect to the plane of the ecliptic. Almost all the rest of the planets are down here in the ecliptic plane, Pluto and Eris just stand out like sore thumbs. And it really was the discovery of Eris that led to the, the debate in the, in the summer of 2006 over what the nature of a planet was and led to a, essentially a compromise among the dynamicists and the planetary uh, structure people as to what constitutes a planet and what constitutes a new class of objects called dwarf planets. Now, a dwarf planet is small enough that it's not, it's big enough that it can be, its shape can be determined by gravity, so they're essentially spherical. 
but it's a dwarf planet because it's not the dynamically dominant object in its orbit. It's not like the others where the big objects, even like the Earth, control the motions of everything within their orbit. They're actually relatively small, and as we'll see in just a second, the orbits of things like Pluto and Eris are more strongly influenced by Neptune than they are by each other. <coughs> so what are these things? Well, these icy worlds with Pluto and Eris are, if they're not planets, what are they? The answer is they are the largest members we currently know of a brand new class of outer solar system objects called, well, call it for lack of a better worlds, the icy worlds of the outer solar system. They're found only in the outer solar system. In fact, they're found with very few exceptions beyond the orbit of Neptune. Their densities range between 1.2 and 2 grams per cc. So we're looking at objects which are dominantly ice balls with a little bit of rock mixed in. They're basically composites. The largest of these are expected to be dif differentiated. Rock in the middle, ice mantles on the outside. They're extremely cold. Their surfaces are measured in tens of degrees Kelvin. And reflectance spectroscopy shows them again to be covered with nitrogen and methane ices. More recently, we've begun to detect carbon monoxide ices, which is exactly what you would expect for these regions out beyond 30 or 40 astronomical units from our sun. So we call these objects the trans-Neptunian objects. Now, that they're very cold, even though they're small, the largest of these can actually maintain an atmosphere. Here is, again, this plot we've seen before of escape speed versus surface temperature. And then the lines here are the equilibrium points for various gases. If the planet is above the line, it can hold on to that gas. If the planet is below the line, its, too small, it's gravity is too small to hang on to the gas. So in this case, even though Pluto, Triton, and Eris are smaller than all the giant, other giant moons of the solar system combined, they're so cold that the gases are slowed down enough that even their low escape speeds can hang on to them. And notice particularly this black line, which is the line for nitrogen and carbon, carbon monoxide. So if you had a nitrogen-carbon monoxide atmosphere or methane, which is the other volatile, you can see that Triton and Eric can just barely hang on to methane gas. In fact, it should be methane should be an ice out here basically from about 80 degrees Kelvin down, as you may remember that homework problem from the other day. Whereas nitrogen and carbon monoxide in gas form are moving slow enough for these objects to be expected to, and in fact, they are observed to have, well, Pluto and Triton are observed to have nitrogen very small, weak nitrogen atmospheres. <clears throat> now, the name we give to these objects generically, Icy World to the Outer Solar System is my name for them. It's very descriptive. The, the official name for all these objects is the rather unimaginative sounding trans-Neptunian objects. It's unimaginative, but it's very properly descriptive. These are objects that are beyond the orbit of Neptune. So the orbit of Neptune, the largest of the ice giants, really represents the outer edge of the planetary system and the beginning of the transplanetary system in our, in our solar system. These objects tend to range from 30 astronomical units outwards. The most distant of these objects probably gets out as far away as 100 astronomical units. We divide these into various subclasses by their orbital dynamics. So for example, Kuiper belt objects form this large broad belt here. This picture on the right shows the outer solar system. This outer circle is the orbit of Neptune, Uranus, Saturn, and Jupiter. You can see the Trojans from Jupiter. The sun is there. You can see that most of the red objects here in this picture are the trans-Neptunian objects. And as advertised, they orbit primarily beyond the orbit of Neptune. There are objects inside the orbit of Neptune and Uranus. Some of these are objects called centaurs. These white spots that you see running around here are a special class of trans-Neptunian objects that are in resonance. And in fact, one of these, 
and I've kind of lost it here in the, in the muck. This one right here is Pluto. And these are all objects that turn out to be in three to two resonances. So we see the Kuiper Belt objects is the large number of red objects. Plutinos or little Plutos are going to be three to two resonant objects like Pluto, but they're smaller. And there's going to be objects called the scattered disk. Now, scattered disk isn't as obvious from this picture. So rather than plotting a snapshot of where those objects are today, we plot a picture of their complete orbits. And now you can see pretty clearly the Kuiper belt here between about 30 and 50 astronomical units and elliptical orbits, but they all sort of stay within this zone. Very reminiscent, you might notice, from the asteroid belt that we saw yesterday. Not an accident, as we'll see in a moment. These very, very large elliptical orbits, like Eris, for example, represent the scattered disk, as if objects that were down in the belt due to the gravitational interactions with Neptune got kicked into a high orbit, and now they're on these long, high elliptical orbits, and they look like they've just kind of been scattered out of the general run of objects in the Kuiper belt. The largest Kuiper belt objects we know, here's kind of a rogues gallery of these. Eris and Pluto are now classified as dwarf planets in the trans-Neptunian realm. Three more candidates for being dwarf planets are 2005 FY9, 2003 EL61, and Sedna. Orcus and Qua are also possibly in the running as is this smaller object, Varuna. Some of these objects are a little odd. You'll notice 2003 EL61, which is a temporary designation before it's given a real name, is slightly football-shaped, and it kind of goes end over end. There isn't enough data on these yet to be able to know if they meet all the characteristics for dwarf planet classification. And it's certainly an area of currently ongoing research. But again, you can notice the sizes. Currently, the largest known is Eris, followed by Pluto, and then down onto these various other objects. A lot of these objects, in fact, most of these objects, Eris, 2005 FY9, 2003 EL61, Sedna, Qua, and I'm, not, I, I'm drawing a blank on Orcus and, and Varuna, were all discovered by the same team. Mike, Mike Brown, Caltech, Chad Trujillo at the Gemini Observatory, and uh, David Rabinowitz at Yale. So it's a wonderful team. They've got a wonderful technique. I've actually not worked with them. I've kind of helped them a little bit, but that's a different story for a different day, having to do with the discovery of this guy, 2003 EL61. You may have heard a story about how some uh, people from an observatory in Spain hacked into an observatory database, got some coordinates, and announced the discovery of this object in advance of Brown's team. That computer was, in fact, upstairs in the astronomy department. <laughs> but that's a different story for a different day. <clears throat> the Kuiper Belt objects are rather interesting, interesting objects here. Um, they're the most common form of trans-Neptunian object we know of today. They form into a very broad, flattened region known as the Kuiper Belt. The existence of the Kuiper Belt was actually predicted long before the discovery of the first Kuiper Belt object by a man named Gerard Kuiper and a British astronomer named Edgeworth, whose first name I've forgotten, unfortunately. They predicted it because this is the plausible source for so-called short-period comets that we'll talk about tomorrow. But anyway, the first of these was discovered in 1992. These are, this Kuiper Belt is actually bounded. It's a very sharp inner edge and outer edge. And again, hey, no surprises here. The inner and outer sharp edges are due to the fact that that's the 3 to 2 on the inner edge and 2 to 1 resonance with the planet Neptune. So just like the gravity of Jupiter, the resonance, the 2 to 1 and 4 to 1 resonance bind the inner and outer edges of the main asteroid belt, the inner and outer edges of the Kuiper belt are bounded in this case by the 3 to 2 and 2 to 1 resonances. So once again, resonances shape families of objects in orbits. There's also an additional group, which are these scattered Kuiper Belt objects, which have these long elliptical orbits. 
At this time, even though the first one was found in 1992, once people figured out the trick, the technology has exploded. More than a thousand such Kuiper Belt objects are known or confirmed now, and it's estimated that there are somewhere around 70,000 Kuiper Belt objects larger than 100 kilometers in diameter still lurking out there to be found. The largest of these are the ones I showed on the previous page. They're in excess of 1,000 kilometers in size, and many are candidates for being dwarf planets. If you add up the total mass of the Kuiper Belt, and this is kind of a tricky thing to do because we haven't observed all of the Kuiper Belt, the total mass is about 3% the mass of the Earth. Contrast that with the total mass of the asteroid belt, which was 0. .0006 the mass of the Earth total, 0. .03 or something like that. There's a lot more material in the Kuiper Belt than there is in the asteroid belt, by, by at least a factor of 100. Here's once again this very famous plot you've seen before of mass versus semi-major axis. This now shows the Kuiper Belt bounded by the resonant orbits with Neptune. Here's Pluto inside the Kuiper Belt, and Eris is in fact part of this so-called scattered belt. This group inside is a group of objects that can be scattered into the solar system rather than out of the solar system, form the group called the centaurs. And again, you can see the relationship of Pluto and Eris to the giant moons and the planets. They really do stand out as the largest members of this class rather than the smaller members of this class. We divide these things up, these TNOs, these trans-Neptunian objects, by their dynamics, by their orbital mechanics. That gives us a way of classifying them. There's the classical Kuiper Belt objects, which are bounded between the 3 to 2 and 2 to 1 resonances with Neptune. Here's Neptune and Uranus shown on these plots as the, the inner and outer green dot. Then there are the very special cases where you see very strong pile-ups of objects in these diagrams. These plots, semi-major axis versus inclination, tilt of the orbit with respect to the ecliptic, and eccentricity, perfectly round to elliptical or uh, hyperbolic orbits up here on the top. We can see that the, these resonant objects form very clear families, very clear clusterings. These three to two objects are known as the Plutinos, and Pluto is the largest of the Plutinos. And these two to one objects are given the name Tutinos. Some of the outer solar system people have a weird sense of humor. The scattered disk objects, however, don't just simply land anywhere in the outer part of the solar system. If you look at their eccentricity versus their semi-major axis, they tend to lie out along these two lines. These two lines are lines which cross very, fairly close to and have perihelion passage closest to the sun, very close to the orbit of Neptune. And so what we're seeing here is objects that have been gravitationally scattered and slingshotted out away from the Kuiper Belt into the so-called scattered belt. And Eris is the largest of these. It's hiding out among this group. Actually, Eris is um, Eris is one of these. Is that object right there? Actually, no. I'm sorry, that's wrong. Right, Eris is that guy right there. So all what you're seeing here is the fact that there is not a random scattering of stuff, but there are very well-defined loci in this diagram is saying Neptune's been here. Neptune's gravity has influenced these objects. In fact, there are two classes of resonant objects. I'll just mention them very quickly. The Plutinos in a 3 to 2 resonant with Neptune. They define the inner edge of the Kuiper belt. And Pluto is the largest of the so-called Plutinos. Plutino is Italian for little Pluto. The two Tinos are, are a group of two to one resonant objects that define the outer edge of the Kuiper belt. And there's only a handful of those known because it's fairly far away. What we're seeing is this, these regions have been swept in here because while, while Pluto has, while Jupiter has moved into the solar system, Neptune has actually migrated slowly outwards through the solar system over its history. And we're seeing once again dynamical sweeping into resonances. 
So what are these things? Why do we care? Well, what we're really seeing is these are the leftover icy planetesimals from the formation of the solar system. The reason why we're so interested in these is this is the most pristine raw material from leftover from that initial formation disk. But we don't know much about it. They're so far away. So there's two ways to study it. One, very expensive, is you can send a space mission out there. The New Horizons mission was launched in January of 2006. It's just recently passed its slingshot maneuver with Jupiter and is on its way out to a 2015 flyby of the planet Pluto, which will give us a good look. Is it geologically old or geologically young? Stay tuned. We're going to find out here in about eight years. It's also going to go on and try through the year 2020 to have encounters with other Kuiper Belt objects. But there's another way to study the outer solar system. Why go there? Why not wait? And every now and then, one of the icy objects of the outer solar system plunges into the inner solar system. And when it does so, it's called a comet. And that will be the subject of tomorrow's lecture.